This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. episode 288 of the craft beer and brewing podcast i'm jamie Bodner, and joining me from kansas city missouri are uh, brian and mary rooney from bks ours and ales welcome to the podcast mary and brian thanks for having us yeah happy to be here uh we've become big fans of uh of the beer that you all have brewed uh of course everything that you've sent to the magazine has uh has really impressed us uh our judges loved uh things like your churthing west coast ipa gave it a score at 98 tumbling tumbleweeds in this last Pale Ale issue we just did scored a 95. Uh, the Rock Hill and Locust Dark Mild scored a 95 with us. And then, of course, went on to win a gold medal for you at uh, GABF in 2022. And you, you won a silver medal in 2021 uh, for Clouds, double hazy IPA. Uh, you guys have been making some interesting stuff. There's a uh, breakout brew story in, uh, in Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine that we wrote about you, along with that recipe for Clouds that you all shared with us. Thank you all for that. Uh, we've been big, big fans for a while here, and so I was excited to, to get to talk through the podcast. We're going to talk about uh, brewing hazy IPA. We're going to talk about brewing things like English-style ales and trying to find ways to make uh, you know compelling iterations that also capture that kind of personality. Um, before we do that, for years, G&D Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000-plus breweries across the country along the way. And they're proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. They know brewing doesn't stop at 5 o'clock, and nor do they. GD uses quality components, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation with 24-7 service and support so your brewery will never stop. Remote monitor your chiller for simple and fast access to all the information you need, providing you with the peace of mind your operation is running smoothly. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by CanCraft. Need aluminum cans, lids, or PackTech can carriers? Design help? Don't know where to start? Thankfully, CanCraft is nearby and ready to deliver your complete packaging solution. Plus, with low minimums and full service support from design through delivery, reaching your brand potential has never been easier. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash CanCraft to get started. All right, Brian and Mary, let's talk about uh, you guys. Uh, what were some of the, was that that moment with craft beer? Uh, you know, and I imagine you each have uh, uh, different but similar stories. What was where was the aha moment where it clicked for you, and uh, and then kind of trace that arc through the uh, the idea of starting your own and operating your own brewery in this now pretty crazy world of uh, of craft brewery ownership. Um, what's that history look like for you all? Uh, for me, it goes way back. Uh, to an innocent time in 1995 for craft beer, I think. Um, I went to University of Kansas in uh, 1995, freshman in college there, and that's when I first discovered craft beer. I have this moment that I remember where somebody handed me my first beer. Of course, I was 18 years old. It was um, Boulevard Tenpenny, and I had never tasted anything like that. I grew up in central Missouri. I was used to bush light, nat light, that type of stuff. I had never tasted something as full flavored as that. Uh, it was unique. I didn't understand anything about it. And then I think I got a Boulevard Pale Ale right after that. And I thought that tasted very grapefruity. And it just stuck with me for most of my life, like just that impression the very first time I had it, 18 years old in 1995. Um, and it went beyond that. So um, 
as I was in school in uh, Kansas at the time, there was weird liquor laws. You couldn't uh, just go get uh, beer on a Sunday from a liquor store or from a grocery store. So Sundays, we would go into a Free State Brewing Company because breweries were allowed to uh, sell beer when the liquor stores and grocery stores were only doing the 3.2 beer. So uh, we would go in there and fill them up with all different types of stuff that uh, Free State would have. And I fell in love with Ad Astra, which was their German alt beer. They still make it today. It's a beer that I still drink and love. And uh, that kind of got me really more into craft beer um, from that point forward. And so after college, I had moved out to Portland, Oregon with a couple of my friends. And that was like uh, 2000, 2002 that I was living out there. And that's when uh, Deschutes Mirror, Mirror Pond was like everywhere on draft. I just remember like every place we would go, we would be having Mirror Pond. And there was just that punchy, grapefruity, uh, like the crystal malt character was in there. Um, but I really enjoyed it and I found something pleasurable about drinking that beer and then, uh, moved to Denver, Colorado after that, that was like, um, 02 to 04. And I started drinking some beers at like wine coop in the early days, falling rock tap house was a place I stopped into, tried a bunch of different stuff there and just kept expanding like my knowledge and palate around like, uh, craft beer. And then I ended up back in Kansas city area uh, for work in like Oh four. And that's about when I met Mary. Sure. What was it like for you, Mary? Probably a little different path than Brian. Um, <laughs> not to go back to my, my, uh, early years, but I grew up in a, a very rural part of Arkansas. that was a dry County. <laughs> so I, I, I was kind of late to the game, I think, and, and craft beer. Um, I really didn't discover craft beer probably until I moved to Kansas city in 2001 after college. Um, had a really good friend that worked for, and a roommate that worked for a local craft beer distributor um, that would distributed for Boulevard and was able to get exposure to a lot of different beers and people and things that I had never been exposed to before on the on the craft beer side. Um, so you know, we went to a lot of different events and uh, got to try a lot of different styles of beer that I hadn't tried before, and really was intrigued with the industry. Um, and so when I met Brian in 2004, um, we were both still, I think, early into, into craft beer, but together we would go to a lot of craft breweries together, uh, started drinking. At the time, you know, Belgian styles were, were really popular, so um, really got in. Personally, that's kind of was my intro, I think, to, to craft beer was, uh, you know, the Saison and, and uh, sour beers, things like that. In the mid two thousands, uh, you know, having that as an entree into craft beer is a pretty fun one. So then, where to go from there? You, you know, Brian, you were, you homebrewed then, right? Uh, yeah, that well, that didn't start until um, two thousand and nine, and so okay, um, I think Mary. So I back backwards a little bit. So in college, there was somebody I knew that uh, got a homebrew kit for Christmas, and I looked at it and I was like, "That's so cool! I would love to learn how to make beer." And then I forgot about it and. Um, but I kept talking about it and Mary obviously overheard me rambling about it all the time that I want to do it, but I didn't know how to do it. So she buys me a Mr. Beer kit. And I know this is like how, uh, a billion stories on this podcast start with a Mr. Beer kit. It's surprising to me. I thought maybe we were the only ones, but we're not. 
And it's a touchstone. It's just yeah. common experience, right? Yeah. So I got the turkey fryer kit with the Gatorade cooler in the backyard doing yeah. that whole thing. I did it for a couple of years and then I got interested in, I somehow read something about water profiles and the light bulb went off. It's like, well, I mean, you know, most of this is water. So obviously that has to be a huge thing to it. And the beers I started uh, making and then I entered them into homebrew competitions locally. They just started winning medals. And so uh, I talked with Mary and I said, I'd like to remodel a portion of our basement and put an electric brew system. This is like 2012. There was no out of box system that you could buy. You had to like build the panel install the heating elements, drill everything on the kettles. Like, I mean, it was real bootstraps. And so I did that and installed it in the basement. And once I started doing that, I was entering national homebrew competition uh, and we were advancing out of the regionals into the finals. That gave me some confidence around it, that it wasn't just friends or family, that there was actually people that were judges um, that understood what you're trying to do or picking it out and giving you feedback. And I thought maybe I could do something with this, but at the time, uh, a lot of breweries, were, there was not a lot of smaller breweries. Everything was very big, and it, I just couldn't see the jump from home brewer to commercial brewer. And I was very like uh, confused about how to do that. I'm not a very good like uh, business side of the person. I would say I can't like put a business plan together really well, but I have a very creative side to me, and that's kind of where Mary came from. And I just was talking with her. We were on a trip to go see some friends in Oklahoma, and I said. I would really love to, you know, do this. And I feel like there's a creative aspect of something that I can do here that I could do really well, but I don't know how to start it. And so then Mary was kind of like the catalyst to get that launched. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, we had a lot of conversations about the concept of opening a craft brewery, talked a lot about it. It's like, well, let's put it on paper. Like, is this a concept that can actually work? <laughs> um, looked at what other breweries were doing, um, especially on the East and West Coast, where I think that concept was, you know, already happening of how do you make a small craft brewery that you sell everything on premise versus going the distribution route, uh, which wasn't really happening in Kansas City at the time. So how do we, um, you know, take this concept and, and make it happen? And, and initially, you know, we really wanted it to be very small, something that we could do ourselves. Um, and at the time, the idea was to uh, both of us still work and just something we did on the side <laughs> um, and just grow it in a way that was very organic. Um, you know, let's start small, grow as we see opportunity. Um, so we took that business plan and we you know, flushed it out. Brian really spent a lot of time once he got going on it, uh, you know, putting the, the ideas behind it. Uh, we did a trip to um, Northeast up to you know visit some breweries in New England, like Treehouse when they were starting out, um, Hill Farmstead. Uh, we didn't get a chance to actually go into Trillium, but they were open at the time. So a lot of that you know that newer concept, and I think that was in 2014 that we did that trip, uh, that really helped us kind of flush out the ideas more. Like how do we actually do this uh, within Kansas City? Yeah, we had to, uh, we had a big hurdle once we got down the business plan that we realized in order to be in this neighborhood in Kansas City, um, you have to find a manufacturing zone building and there aren't any. There's tons of beautiful buildings in our neighborhood uh, that are appropriately sized for, for a brewery with a tasting room, but it was just antiquated laws. And uh, 
we had to get those changed in order to be in this neighborhood. And so fortunately, Mary had some um, uh, network connections from her from her corporate job that she could reach out to and got connected with our city councilman. And we proposed an ordinance change. And we still are the only brewery in a neighborhood zoned like this because it, it, it's rather difficult still to do it. But we got in and we're able to to do the brewery thing here. And I say that, but it's weird. In Kansas City, they allow you to have a brew pub uh, as long as you're serving food and 60% of your sales are on premise in the form of draft pour. Uh, but we were looking at something like, how about 70% in to-go package, you know, with a tasting room and we want to be here. And it was not understood. And so we spent the better half of a year proposing the idea and, and trying to punch it through. And then like, I think around Mary was in 2016, it got passed through. Yeah, so it, you know, we worked with uh, the city councilman, and, and the idea was um, we needed to be in an area that was typically retail. So we need to have a special use permit, and we could a craft brewery our size, even though we were only you know initially making 250 barrels a year, um, couldn't even be in a space like that. So we had to work with our, our councilman, and they you know took many uh, rounds of approvals um, and luckily we were able to get it passed where we could be in, in the existing building we're in and our landlord helped us a lot too uh, there were some uh, challenges with the zoning of the actual building um, so now at breweries like artisan our businesses like craft breweries butchers a few others can be in uh, more retail zone spaces so it's a uh, it's a really cool environment that we were lucky to be able to to get that ordinance passed. Um, yeah, that was like so that was uh, kind of the the beginning of it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Twenty seventeen, and then um, yeah, we uh, got connected with our landlord and had the build out of the space. We opened in October of twenty seventeen. It was a three barrel brew house with three fermenters and one three barrel bright tank, and just myself doing everything with Mary helping me out and then like just some friends helping in the tasting room. And we just did it, uh, with just being open on Saturdays only. And it was, um, that's all we could handle. Like right out of the gates, it was like a, a lot of crushing interest. I would say like there was a line out the door and I mean, you can pontificate on why that happened or not. It's like, it's kind of surprising to me still to look back on it and uh, the years went by and uh it just kind of never stopped mostly yeah that's fantastic and i love when you say the city let you do it but really the city didn't let you do it you <laughs> went after it and made it happen and i think you know that's that's another interesting piece of this entire you know craft beer story that uh you know in a broader sense for a lot of ways uh, you know this wasn't given to you know the so many craft brewers have had to change laws, change ordinances. I mean, it's such an interesting story to see, uh, you know, you all having as a young entrepreneurs having to like, yeah. not, not just deal with all the normal problems of getting yeah. a business up and running, but also change the laws so that you could even sure. do it. Missouri um, and Kansas city is not too bad. We have, you know, there is AB and Bev in St. Louis. And so there, yeah. there is some, you know, flexible laws in Missouri overall, but it's hard to change anything because of that too. The laws in Missouri are funny like that. I mean, yeah. you you know, there's no open container laws. You can drive in a car <laughs> with open beer. Like, uh, yeah. you know, there are some things like yeah. that that are a little little freaky for folks that are not used to that kind of uh, flexibility. Things haven't changed. Um, yeah. Places stay open till all hours of the night. You know, anything <laughs> there that could be friendly, sure, sure, sure. Um, 
some some interesting fun laws nonetheless in the state of Missouri. I want to talk about then, of course, how you uh, you know started brewing uh, and what the beer program looks like and uh, how you added that element you know to what you brew. Before we do that, AccuBrew is a new analytical tool unlike anything else on the market that gives brewers like you unprecedented insight into your fermentation process. You can remotely monitor sugar conversion, temperature, and clarity to ensure consistency by quickly detecting out-of-range conditions. The AccuBrew system creates and stores permanent records so you can compare every batch. AccuBrew goes beyond a simple measurement tool. AccuBrew helps you monitor, document, and manage your fermentation process in real time. Also at ProBrew, they believe that your brewery deserves equipment as unique as the drinks that you craft. That's why their solutions are specifically designed to help you brew your beer not someone else's. From brewing to fermenting to carbonating and can filling, ProBrew's customizable equipment empowers breweries to expand operations at their own pace. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. ProBrew, brew your beer. And if you hear Old Orchard mentioned in the brewing community, don't be surprised. The flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped to over 46 states. Their new brewing customers often mention discovering Old Orchard through the word-of-mouth recommendation of another brewer. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. So you have this uh, idea, this nascent idea to start a small three-barrel brew house, um, you know, and only open on the weekends, which I mean, honestly, that that crazy little strategy worked for Treehouse. And so uh, um, there is something weird about that, even though it's a horribly inefficient way to actually make beer, actually do enough volume to actually, you know, justify the labor and to actually be able to pay yourself something. I mean, uh, I can only imagine that uh, thankfully Mary was there who, uh, had, uh <laughs> to, to help pay those bills. Yeah. I assume that's how it worked in that yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and still does. Yeah. And still does. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, a horribly inefficient way to actually run a business, but something that you also learn a lot from, um, from brewing all the time and going through that process. Um, talk to me about the, uh, the beer program that you developed, uh, how you decided to focus on what you decided to make, uh, why you decided to make it and how you you've gone about, uh, um, you know, making those beers your own. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we're covering like a, a span of like, uh, well, I guess we're, we're into our sixth year now and six years is a lifetime in craft beer. I feel like, uh, I feel like for every five years, it's 10 years for the normal world. Right. It's like uh, trends change, uh, sentiments and, uh, consideration for like why people want to come visit your brewery change like overnight. It's been, it's been really interesting to see all that type of stuff happen, but like today, so we have a a seven barrel brew house. We have 19 fermenters in our brewery uh, that range in size from five barrel to 10 barrel. We have five bright tanks. Uh, We have two lagering bright tanks that are with all of that. And so we'll do uh, just under like 1200 barrels uh, this year. And that's as much as we can do out of this space. And that came from a place of what I said earlier, where we're doing 250 barrels on a, um, you know, a three barrel system. Unfortunately, I've got three full time folks working with me in the back, Alex Moss, Aaron Luchart and uh, Aaron Ruth, good friends of mine that are making it all work and doing great stuff back there. And so it takes a lot of people to, to make all of that happen on a small scale like this. It's a ton of ton of beer to manage. And so 
we didn't start out with the idea that we were going to do, uh, you know, at any given time, we might have 19 different beers on our fermenters, if you can think of it that way. Uh, but a lot of them might have some lineage to each other. Uh, we're just expressing with different dry ops, maybe a different yeast, all of these types of things. And so when we went into to starting the brewery, it was just like a couple things for me. It's like, and Mary, we talked about, it's like we wanted to, we wanted to stay nimble and we wanted to stay relevant, meaning like kind of finding a way to connect with like, um, what we, what we love drinking, but like also like where the consumers are at. Like, um, I don't think we're arrogant enough just to say like, this is the beer that we love and you're going to take it and you're going to love it. And luckily we had some in between on that. And then I think we also talked a lot about, we wanted to source the best ingredients, no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice for the business in order to make sure that the beer is tasted absolutely as good as they can. And then, um, you know, I mentioned our staff, it's like, we wanted to make sure that before we ever considered growth, that we had the right people that were on board, meaning like we would hire somebody when we were just like busting at the seams, like we couldn't handle it anymore. We needed somebody, we would get the right person and then maybe we're a little staff heavy, but then we would grow the business for them. As far as being nimble and I, um, kind of responding to trends, I think, you know, that is kind of who we are and that's part of why we've stayed the size we are. Um, as far as the size of, of batches we're brewing, I mean, we we were brewing, you know, um, the biggest batch we'll brew out here is a 10 barrel batch, um, but it allows us to, you know, share it directly with the consumer in our tap room. Um, we do very limited distribution, so most of all of our product is sold out of here. So we can get that instant feedback from our consumers, uh, whether it's in a can format or on, a, on, on tap. That helps us then take that feedback and, you know, maybe even something we're brewing this week, like, hey, we're going to make this change. Like I was, I told Brian this morning, I was like, we keep getting asked about this beer. We need to make it. Uh, so we just put it on the schedule for next week. You know, we can change things so quickly um, that helps us respond to what consumers want. Uh, whether it be a you know, trend or maybe seasonality changes, uh, something we want to try. Maybe it's a, a style of beer we never made before. Uh, that small batch allows us to do that. So like, hey, today we want to try making uh, an amber lager. We never made it before. Well, let's do you know, a five-barrel batch and see how it goes. We, won't, we may not make it again. Maybe we may make it you know, 500 times. But uh, I think that has given us the ability to do be kind of our own little incubator. And, and that's why people keep coming back too, I think, because they know every time they walk in our tap room, it's gonna be a little different than the last time they were here. I would never urge anybody to like start as small as we did, but it was the right thing that worked for us. And I didn't have commercial brewing experience. I was scared to death of a three barrel brewing system. I thought it was the biggest thing I've ever seen. And um, now it's just, of course, it's no big deal, but for me, we got to brew a lot of beers and a lot of them turned out really well because, uh, you know, we were able to scale a lot of it from homebrew side to that level. I don't think that it would have transitioned well to a 10 barrel size. Hmm. And so I got to learn along the way. We got to stair step it. I got to build uh, relationships and network with a lot of key people uh, in our in our local uh, pro brewing community as well as outside of here. They're able to taste the beers and we're really interested in it. And I got like tips and I got to learn from other people along the way about how to take the next step because I wasn't ready for the next step. 
I didn't know enough about it. And so I've, you know, I've, I've learned a great deal from a lot of other people that have helped us figure a lot of these things out. And it's through friendship and relationships and uh, people who are willing to share. And so I'm always super appreciative of that. But we definitely had some failures in the early days, but the failures were small. So we didn't have to suffer through those. And we got to stair step it. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people can't see at a small scale brewery like ourselves, where we started and where we've got, like we had to go through a lot of those things. Where it comes out now is like most everything that comes out of here is very polished, you know, very much how we want it to be. But that's taken years to get to it. You know, we're six years in and it's like these things should be happening. This is exactly how these beers should turn out, you know. So um, it's been a long been a long journey with it in a few in a few six years. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, let's, uh, I, I do want to talk about uh, how you, you know, particularly brew from a, in a technical sense and how you have, uh, you know, m- uh, done things because uh, you don't just start winning medals and uh, scoring the way that you score uh, with our blind panel just out of nowhere. The, the, you know, and obviously it didn't come out of nowhere. It comes from uh, a, many, many years of, uh, of working through this. I want to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, how that reflects in some of the key beers that your customers are really loving for you. But before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hopbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS BrewTech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS BrewTech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, have you heard of Christian Hansen? They're the fermentation experts with over 100 years of experience in dairy and wine, and they are now bringing that knowledge of microbes to brewers with their SmartBev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria. This portfolio allows for consistent performance at the brewery and produces a range of high-quality brews. Reimagine what your beer can be. Go to Christian Hansen, chr-hansen.com to learn more about the SmartBev line of products. That's chr-hansen to learn more. Um, from my perspective, you guys and, and progressive IPA styles have done a, done some fantastic work. Let's uh, let's talk about where you started in building recipes around that and uh, where where you are now. Uh, clearly, it's not just us, not just our blind judges who love the way that you're brewing these. Um, you know, but uh, when you're concocting a recipe, when you when you're really visualizing this um, nowadays, uh, you know, where do you, where do you start uh, building a recipe for a hazy IPA? Um, I, we, we think a lot about how we make all of our beers. It, it comes from, um, soft process and, um, soft beer is like, that's the idea that we think about is I, I, I find something about the soft quality of beer. Um, when I, when I have something like that, I recognize it. And so like, I'm looking for something that's not blocky or angular, uh, or harsh, and we're trying to find something that's soft and palatable, all those sorts of things. And so for me, it starts number one with water. And um, I think that that is, that's the key that sets you up uh, for success with beer. So for uh, water profile management, so we have a bunch of different water profiles for all the different beers that we do. So to talk a little bit about Kansas City, we have extremely rough water to work with here we're off of like the missouri river watershed 
And so we're, our water's like 9.8 pH. Uh, extremely high sulfate level, like we'll get up sometimes in the winter to like 350. Uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, so <laughs> you can use it sometimes if you're doing <laughs> if you're doing stouts. In fact, sometimes that like buffer of the higher pH is excellent for that. Like we can really come in line with like a, a really nice like pH level uh, for our stouts, that type of stuff. But think for like golden colored types of beers, it gets a little challenging. And there are there are ways to work around that, you know, like uh, heating your HLT water, getting it to precipitate out, dropping some of that minerality. And I think some of that does happen for a lot of the breweries that may use water like that. Um, but for us, we started taking a look into water samples and noticing like the TDS levels that shift seasonality. And so we started seeing some seasonality swings in our beers from like summer to winter and all these types of things. And I thought our beers tasted better like when there was like spring runoff or fall runoff when there was like more water going through and the minerality was a little bit lower and so we started with city filtered water but what I started to get an idea about was maybe we should use RO and I have always thought that like all RO water leads to kind of like a little bit flabby beer in my opinion as uh, so I think there's intangibles that are um, in your city water source like colloidal stability of these ionic bonds that are in there and the minerality it's like you you can't discredit those you can't get rid of those there's like a tawar of your city water source that you have that i think you should use if you're a brewery you should find a way to use it and so we use a blend of reverse osmosis and a blend of city filtered water and what we're targeting is we're targeting specific total dissolved solid levels and when we look at that those lead us to some theoretical ideas because over the years as we've tested it, sending it off to ward laboratories, we know that there's, with that TDS level, there's gonna be roughly this calcium, roughly this chloride, roughly this sulfate level, and we can depend on the rest of the magnesium and sodium to kind of be the same. And so then we can build our water profiles up based off of that. And so we start every beer from that standpoint is like, let's start with soft water. So you'll change the percentage of your RO water with your filtered city water Absolutely. based on where you're, you know, to get you in the ballpark and then you'll build up uh, and kind of yeah. uh, add where you need to from there. Yeah, we kind of have a, uh, I would say for for us, it's an oversized reverse osmosis system. It's very powerful for, for our size. <laughs> uh, we spent a little bit on it. And so what it allows us to do is get more Se seven barrel brew house RO system. Y y okay. Yeah. I get, I'm getting a sense here. Sure. But we can blend in line with it essentially to get what we want rather than having to like fill an HLT and waste that expensive right. water. We use our HLT essentially. Yeah. City filtered water. We could top up with it. We clean our brew house with it. We don't necessarily use it for graining in. We use this more like a, a inline feed, essentially. And we have a grist hydrator that it pushes into at about five gallons per minute for us. And so it does a really great job and we can get on demand. Uh, we run it through tankless water heaters and get an on demand temperature that we're looking for every single time. But it's very customized water for us every single time we brew and it works really well for us. And so we can have a lot of fun with it. Like it's really great for lager. It's really great for you know, IPA, it's really great for stout or any other dark beers or whatever we're doing. So we can manipulate it along the way. But I think the other piece that comes with that outside of water is 
uh, pH management along the way. And so because we are manipulating that water, we're, we're really focused on not just the mash pH, but we started running some trials of what is the proper pre-boil pH? What is the proper knockout pH? And I think we do, from, from what I've, people I've talked with, I think we do a lot of things a little bit different from that standpoint. We have a little bit of a, a different approach with knockout um, and why that works, number one in hazy beer. But I think uh, we also treat it differently for West Coast. We're trying to find uh, a pH uh, in, the, in, in the water that, that uh, expresses bitterness in a different way that uh, maintains haze in a different way. We think pH is closely related to those types of things. Um, okay, yeah. you, you're dropping these things out here, but you got. I, I want to dig more into that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, when you say that, you know, what does that what does that mean? You know, in terms of uh, you know, and it's funny. I've just been talking about pH quite a bit over the last uh, you know ten days with brewers, and uh, you're right. People have different approaches to this. Uh, you know, for you, what do you you know with a West Coast IPA? Or let's start with hazy IPA. Yeah. Um, you know, number one is there. Uh, you know, as we're walking back let's let's start you know thinking about how you build that up are there is there anything unusual or different about um you know as you're as you're building that character back up within your water um do you take some steps or are there certain additions that you uh you have found that you like that may be uh unusual or or uh, not necessarily used by everyone else in the process well i i would say for for us like if we're talking hazy beer let's start there um yeah we're very much uh, of the mindset of like a uh, hundred uh, or one to one ratio, essentially like on calcium to chloride. I kind of like that really? level. We're very low on sulfate. Like I said, Kansas City water is extremely high. So we'll adjust our TDS to give us a theoretical value where the sulfate's very low. And I like to eliminate sulfate pretty to a pretty low level because I think sulfate creates like this blocky angular character in beer, which I might want that like in West Coast. I think that might work better there. So we might try to work with our TDS to elevate or give us some theoretical sulfate levels and then build maybe with a little bit of gypsum on it, you know, that type of thing. Um, but I think that like for us, like we're going for almost like a lager water expression in, in our hazy beer. And so we're not far off of that. We go a little bit lower on lager with TDS we get um, pretty low with Czech, um, you know, more German type of expression. We're like in, in a little bit step above that. But like our our, uh, our hazy IPA is not far off the mark from that. You know, but it's got a little bit more calcium and chloride to it. So we start from there. Um, as we go through the brewing process on that, um, we like to bring our kettle pH down quite a bit lower than is traditional. And some of that stuff is proprietary for us. I think that those things do lead to haze stability, but I encourage people to play around with that. Like go beyond what you know. Don't just take the uh, the standard numbers that you may have heard or whatever. Try try to take a little lower. And so my, my advice on that is, you know, I think that if you read a lot about what makes a good Belgian wit, uh, is it acidifying the wort quite a bit? to a little bit of a lower level. It's like, but those are, those are haze stable with that yeast. And so we started taking a page from like Belgian brewing to look at like, well, wouldn't that work for like what we're trying to do with our, with our English yeast essentially. And then we found it to be true. But the other nice thing that I think happens with a lower kettle pH, um, specifically in the whirlpool is that we get like a, a softer bitterness and those beers are all about softness. 
And it's like, if you get like any like blocky, angular, harsh bitterness that's in there, I feel like it's, it can be out of place for hazy beer. And so we're trying to create softness with drinkability without being cloying sweetness. And so one of the things that I think a lot of people might be surprised about is that our beers don't finish with a high residual gravity on hazy beer, but they finish with like this, like fluffier, softer sort of mouthfeel that's in the beer. And I think that that comes from the water. And I think that comes from the pH, like we're landing, you know, I, I'm, I'm a homebrewer, so I still do gravity and I'm like, um, 1016, 1014. I think that's like two, five Plato, something around there, but like, we're not, we're not super high, like, uh, where we finish with our beers on, on hazy beer, but it still leaves enough behind that there's like enough to like go back and drink it and want to keep sipping on it. That's, that's clever when you, uh, you know, uh, how much, I don't know how much you'll talk to me about pH here, but certainly, uh, you know, when you dry hop, you're, you're throwing pH back into the beer. Uh Um, and so your finished beer may, may come back from that. Um, you know, but, but how, how far off of that, uh, you know, know, kind of low fives pH are, are we talking about for, uh, you know, for, uh, for, um, you know, mash and kettle pH. We dip under it for sure. Um, I will okay. say that. And, um, I think you should listen. How do you, how do you like, is there a way that you like to acidify then? Uh, uh you know, are there, you know, we use, we use lactic acid right now, but we've been sure. having an ongoing discussion about using sour wort, like maybe Vireman, like it has a more elegant sort of thing to it. And of course I listened yeah. to the West coast IPA panel podcast yesterday and they're talking about phosphoric acid. So I'm like, maybe we need to get a hold of some phosphoric acid. I don't know. <laughs> there you go obviously you know what, what i was thinking about yeah, when i'm asking I'm that question because we had a... <laughs> yeah we haven't we haven't All necessarily right. tasted the lactic acid uh that we use uh on the hot side and we definitely don't dose on the cold side with it we def we make sure that we that our, our finishing uh fermentation on the cold side we're we we see our ipas are always like you know four three four, four range, and then we're dry hopping and, and we don't see it get above four five. Um, and we do watch that we've had beer get up to four, six or four, seven. And I don't, I personally don't know if it makes a huge difference in aroma and flavor. I think maybe from shelf stability, I think maybe, uh, if you're going through like some warm, warm storage types of things that could possibly play a role. We're selling our beer mostly like in 30 days, um, but we intentionally thought about that. Like when we saw some of the pH spike, like we got into heavier and heavier dry hopping and we're like, let's, let's get it down a little bit because we do know that there's some important aspects of like, you know, you just have this more crisp character that I think starts to happen at four or five, literally versus four or six, in my opinion. Um, and that's just from our observations. That's our beer. I can't say that for everybody. You know, pH is a logarithmic scale, and so uh, you know, in that sense, there's a huge difference between four six and four five. Uh, you know, and so um, you mentioned that 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 pH uh, impacts the the kind of perception of bitterness that ends up in those beers, and then adds to a, a softer perception. You know, this is a subject that whether it's lager or IPA, we've been talking about uh, ad nauseum. Um, but I, I I don't think I can talk about it enough because I think this is one of those key subjects that separates. Um, you know, beer from 10 years ago from beer today, that uh, this ability to especially change the kind of quality of bitterness, um, you know, it's still there. 
It's ju- and it's still doing what it needs to do within the balance of beers, but the way that it presents now is so much more pleasant, palatable than it may have been in these IPAs ten years ago, and that is why you know people today will say, "Well, I can drink IPAs now, and I never used to like them." That's right; they're, they're different now. Um, talk to me a little bit about about that impact there, as as, as well as how that uh, you know it, you know from a variety standpoint and the way that you select hops, how you select hops that are going to provide for that that bitterness in the softest possible way. Yeah, the the hop selection piece is um, of course a a big deal for us. But I think you're right about that. It's like, that's, uh, you know, we talked earlier about like bringing people along for the journey. Like Mary hears this all the time, like um, from customers, she's, she's th- she runs the tasting room and, and, and more for the brewery, like responsible for all the financial stuff. But she always tells me how much people are like, I don't like IPAs, but I like your IPA because it's, it's softer. Right. You know? And um, yeah, we hear that time and time again, but I think, a piece of that goes to uh, selecting the right hops. And so we're, we're thankful for some, some partnerships with like um, Hollingberry hops. They've been excellent to work with Steve. Who's our, our hop rep is is the man when it comes to selecting stuff, helping us through all of that. He's done a fantastic job of helping us get better with that and getting us the right types of things that make our beer better. Uh, we use Crosby also, and then we exclusively use Freestyle hops uh, for all of our New Zealand. We've been with Freestyle for, I think, right before pandemic. Like we jumped on with them for contracts early on, and so that's something we've we've done we've done early on. Like Mary and I talked about that early on. Like Mary even talked about like getting hop contracts is key to our business, even at your size. I think so. I think it helps us. Uh, be able to control a little bit more of, of which hops we're able to get access to. Um, if we were just going off spot, it leaves a little bit up to, um, I don't know, just chance of what you're going to get. Uh, so with, with the contracting process, you know, they at Hollenberry actually sends us samples that we can pick different lots and, and decide what we're getting and what we think will fit best with our, our beers. So um, I know, Brian's kind of our, our, our hop master, <laughs> but he can, uh, you know, smell something, feel it and know that this will be great in one of our hazy beers or this will be best in our, our West Coast style. So we really kind of change maybe our, even the lots we select based on the style of beers we're trying to use them in. Uh, if we didn't have that option with the contracts, I don't know that we, we would have as much control over our our end product yeah we definitely wouldn't um and so uh yeah so for us one of the things that we look at is we're very strapped for time here and i don't have time to go out to yakma i aspire to do that one of these days and be able to be out there and just see the process um that would be an awesome thing but one of the things that we've done i'd say a little bit differently is we've kept very good notes about um, certain varieties and the hop oil content of those varieties and what we're looking for. So we always ask for the certificate of authenticity from the hop uh, brokers or the farm that we're working with. And I pour over that type of stuff. And I really remember what was in that one that I really liked. Because I think there's something to like a pelletized format of a hop versus like what you're seeing from like rubbing from the bale. Cause that's a core sample. And 
you know, it's just a sample of like this thing that's going to be around thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of other things where there's going to be maybe some variation. And so your pelletized end product changes a little bit, both from, you know, blending of all of that, but then also from the pelletizing process, we've seen that bale. Yeah, sure. The addition of heat through that. Yeah. Absolutely. Like we've seen some changes in alpha acid as well as total oil and some of the oil content of some of those specific oils that I like to see in the hops. And so we've kept very good notes over that, I'd say over the last four years, and it's helped us to make better selections. And so a small brewery like us, like we have to be a little more savvy about that. I can't be out there. I can't talk to the farmers, but I can keep detailed records and I can kind of learn to know what we're looking for in the rub and the smell in a palletized, a pelletized format. And then we have walk-in cooler space where we can bring in a significant amount of it. When we find one we like, we're on it immediately. We bring in a big chunk of it. And uh, that makes our day, of course, when we can find those types of things. But um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 a variety of things we look at. It's like uh, the first thing I, I go to is I'm trying to figure out, is it early picked or mid or late picked? And you can kind of derive some assumptions from that based off of like the total oil content of the hop and the alpha acid. And then um, once I kind of make a decision about- In what way, what do you see, uh, you know, how does that yeah, Higher, higher total hops? oil tells me it's gonna be a later picked hop. Later hop. Yeah, yeah, and then like within that spectrum, you're gonna, you're gonna have to see some of the onion garlic and tropical character pop up in there, but I'm looking for tropical character and those later ones. And those are my, those are my hazy beer hops. And then like, I'm looking for higher alpha acid content for West coast. And, and um, if I'm going to dry hop a lager, like and do it like a West coast pills or something like that, I'm looking for like what you want to use in your West coast IPA. And I'm looking for like lower total oil, higher alpha acid, possibly those are, these are just earmarks. They don't always mean it's going to be great. You do need to use these things in beer and decide for yourself if they're going to like shake out the right way. And then more granular, um, but if you can communicate that up front, mm -hmm. you know, to your hop supplier, uh, yeah. then at least, you know, when they're sending you samples, you know, they're sending you within a range, you know, for the kind of thing that you want rather than sending you stuff that, uh, um, you know, may not have a, a chance of making it in. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> they're, they're, uh, I, I say they're starting to know me a lot better about all of that i think they can almost like you're that you're that customer i hope so. i hope we are i think they enjoy it honestly <laughs> i i mean because it's like uh it's so important like if you're gonna make hoppy beer like you should have those conversations you should be totally engaged like you should care a lot about it and um you know and it's like it's never like a uh uh contentious conversation about it it's always just kind of a fun thing it's like listening and learning and there's lots of exchanges on all that from brewer to broker or the farm or whatever there's lots of great stuff to to learn and one of the things i've learned over the years is just to shut up and listen because there's a lot of people with a lot more information than i have and they're willing to share it with you if you just like pipe down and and hear it you know and like why these things might be good or how you should possibly use it but yeah i i look for I try to, um, one of the first landmarks I look at on hops is like, um, Farnesine. Um, 
I don't like that in hops. It's like the woody sort of character, but it doesn't always mean it's going to be bad. We've been surprised by the few times where I see some more elevated levels and I don't really want to try it because I don't like woody character. It leads to like a stringency in, in, in hoppy beer. Um, so we try to like kind of steer, steer clear of that, but sometimes it's really nice. But I have eyes on, on a lot of those little like oil components that are in there. And I always ask for the COA sheet to see those types of things. I like, you know, if I, I know I'm going to use a hop in the, in the kettle, I want low cohumulin levels. Um, it's going to give me like, a, a, again, a softer bitterness. I don't want it to be harsh. Like we keep talking about softness. And so those are, those are things I'm looking for. And I think that's how you should be evaluating hops. If like you don't have the opportunity to go and select uh, out in Yakima or, or have like a lot of things at your disposal to be able to understand, like while you're out there, rubbing those hops, it's like, these are, these are landmarks for you to look for. And more often than not, they're going to lead you down the right path to picking the right types of hops. I also think kind of going back to our initial discussion on, you know, our small batches that we bake, we can test out, uh, you know, a lot of hops that we get from Hollenberry and see if we like it. If we don't, then we could change. And so that's the, the luxury we have with some of our contracting processes. Yeah. Understanding what we're, we're working with and before we totally commit, let's let's test it out in a small batch and, and see what happens. Because sometimes we are surprised. We think this hop's going to be, you know, super funky or taste weird, and then we use it. And we're like, oh, actually, yeah. it really works. But then we have whatever style. But then we have those hops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you never know until yeah. you do it. And so that's the other too. piece of it. That's kind of the fun that I think of it is like sometimes we get some some stuff that we're not totally fond of, and like so we blend out with it, and so we'll find a really stunner lot of hops that we like that's the same variety. And so, you know, we'll blend with it. And we find that we can blend out some of the attributes that we don't love in the other one and still get a desirable outcome. So it's not like all is lost if you have something like that. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes those go in, in the dumpster for sure. Um, or, you know. or or let it sit for a little while and it might change <laughs> That's might another thing is like, change yeah, too. we see Mosaic sometimes does better if you put some age on it, uh, hmm. especially for hazy beer. I think like we've come to some, some assumptions about Mosaic uh, in particular about with hazy beer, like we rub and we smell for like a sweet tea flavor um, that's in there. And we think that's good for hazy beer if some of the other landmarks are in line with it. And then more for like... You know, West Coast, which is still an ongoing project for us. We're trying to still get our chops back on that. And we've been working on that for two years to really um, remember, like, what we love about that because we've been brewing so much hazy beer. And I think, like, more of, like, a dank sort of spicy berry character is, like, what we're looking for in that. But I don't necessarily want to introduce that into, like, hazy beer. Um, and so it's like, we have, we have Citra for, for both styles. We have Mosaic for both styles. And, uh, then we have like accent hops that are out there that we're really like, we have some ones that we think are really cool that we've been using. And, um, yeah, it's, it's wide open with all kinds of stuff these days. <laughs> I want to come back and talk about some of those hop blends because obviously you've, uh, you've been putting a lot of thought into this and, uh, you know, even at the small scale are, are highly involved, but let's talk about some of that hot side, uh, you know, first that kind of hot side with a hazy IPA and what that looks like for you. Uh, how do you balance those things, especially now with, uh, you know, the kind of growth in uh, thiol focus and our understanding that, 
you know, earlier, you know, mash hopping can can produce a lot of those precursors. You know, what is a what is a typical kind of hot side, you know, regimen now look like for you? Um, you know, uh, in terms of uh, how you are going about adding hops through that. I think our, our brewing process is pretty simple. I say that, but it's, you know, may, maybe it's not, but to me, it seems really simple. Like we're not trying to overcomplicate the process. And I think that's something that we also talk about on the brewery side with uh, our brewing staff is like, it doesn't need to be complicated to achieve great results. You have to have good ingredients and you have to treat them right and be soft with everything. So for me, like on the, on the brewing side, I think, um, with hazy beer, we're not, we're not doing any bittering of any kind. Everything goes in the whirlpool. And I think that we can stand up the whirlpool with significant enough additions at the pH level that we're doing to extract aroma character from the hops that we want to stand out in the blend of whatever we're doing and then also kind of peek through with the dry hopping. But recently we've been using, of course, in the last two years, we've been doing a lot more uh, incognito in the kettle, uh, salvo, and then, um, you know, and then also moving these to like some of the new, the new methods with it where you're cooling in with hot wort and then pitching some of that into the fermenter and then cooling the fermenter down and then um, fermenting with it. And we really love the results on that. But I would say for us with the type of beer we're trying to do with how we dry hop things, I don't know that we like it, uh, that dry dip concept on the, um, the pale ale and IPA side so much as we like it in bigger, bolder beers like double IPA. We think there you get some extra character kick with it. You're using more malt uh, there's some more body to it. That stuff kind of like punches through and really like has like this just overwhelming, like out of bag character that comes through. I feel like in lower ABV beers, it can start to become like a little too much. Um, you know, and we, uh, we're looking for complexity and not overwhelming sort of like, um, uh, hop character. Like we still want to have some drinkability there, if that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, so is there anything uh, unusual or, or particular about uh, your whirlpool pr- process with this? I, um, and does that change, you know, hop by hop, or is it pretty standard across the the hazy? IPA I think spectrum? that's that's an ongoing thing at the moment, and so we have found that um, specific varieties of flowable hop products seem to to work better with other hops. Um, hmm. So, like our our philosophy on hazy beer is like citra has to be in there always so citra uh in the whirlpool we use that quite a bit but um we've been experimenting with like what sort of flowable hot product works well with that in the whirlpool and so we've we've messed around with a lot of the incognito products i mean mosaic is a perfect complement to that that uh, the gabf beer for clouds that we submitted uh, we did use Mosaic Incognito in the Whirlpool with that. And I think there is just a nice little bump that it gets from an addition of Mosaic Incognito that blends with um, uh, the Citra that's in the Whirlpool, but then also complements all the other attributes of the dry hop, which in that dry hop, it's uh, Citra, it's Eldorado, it's Simcoe, and it's Mosaic also again in the dry hop there. But 
it's kind of thinking through all these things. You can't just uh, take a, these advanced hop products and just say, I'm going to use this and it's going to be great because there are clashy concepts that are within all of those. And so we found um, like your Citra, your Mosaic goes good with like Eldorado. If you're going to use Eldorado, flowable hot products, either from like Salvo or from uh, Incognito, go for it. But it's like more West Coast expressions. If we're going to use that, it's like I, I might lean more into uh, Mosaic. Um, I like the Centennial stuff there, Chinook, uh, things that get a little more classic. We're still doing a lot of trials on that, but it's all about hot blend and thinking about the, the end results. Like think about where you want to be before you're getting into those types of things. What uh, you say that not everything works? What, what was something that didn't work uh, that that uh, that you learned from? Oh, yeah, I you know, I think like uh, I don't like a uh, uh, Columbus or Chinook like in hazy beer. Like if it's a flowable hot product, I don't think it's uh, a really good thing there. I think you get this like. Um, grassier sort of thing that's there that maybe works better like in uh, a classic like pale ale or something like that which by the way we have used like um, cascade and like um, classic pale ale representations like we've just started getting back into doing some of those and we love how that works cascade sure, sure. yeah it's coming back cascade yeah it will never die citra um, is the cascade of our generation though <laughs> it, tr- it truly is <laughs> It is, yeah, uh, and if you look at the amount that's being grown, uh, I think the the numbers uh, definitely bear that out. Yeah, um, Citra is clearly the most important hop that's uh, maybe ever been grown. Yeah, and um, someone will someone will definitely want to argue with me about that, but uh, <laughs> at least at this time uh, we'll, we'll call it that. Uh, anything particular about your whirlpool in terms of temperature? Do you uh, adjust temperature? No, we... for that. Uh, and you know, what what is that kind of you know? Do you uh, um, you know, long, short, uh, yeah, we're, are there any peculiars to that? We're doing like, a so what we'll, uh, one of the things that we'll do is we'll add the, the flowable hop products in during the whirlpool and then we'll add hops in after it. And basically that's just like taking down the oils into there because we, Alex, who, uh, is, is brewing a lot of the, the word here. He does like 80% of it now is like, I don't brew as much as I used to. They stick me on the packaging line. I'm, so thankful for that. Thank you guys. Uh, no, I'm not, but, um, yeah, packaging is nobody's, nobody's fun thing to do, but, um, yeah, he brews most of the beer and, uh, he noticed that just how like the, the oil just stands up on the top and it was his idea to just start sprinkling hops in slowly during the whirlpool and it sort of takes it down into solution. And we started getting better absorption through that. We don't, uh, you know, cool or work down or do like a hop stand or any of that type of stuff. We're just like knockout, go in, spin it. I think we're a small enough batch as we start to spin it, it starts to drop in temperature. We're looking at like 15 minutes whirlpool. Then we do like a 20 minute rest to let everything settle out. And we have a nice uh, boil kettle that has like some hop shields in there that keep everything from going through uh, uh, the port that we're pulling into the heat exchanger with. So we don't get a lot of that stuff coming through. And, uh, yeah, it's just a, a nice little process we have there with it and, um, cooling in on like hazy beer at like 67 degrees. I think, uh, you know, we use Conan yeast, uh, for all of our hazy beer. I think we have like one that maybe uses 1318, like Vice. uh, 
uh, variant of some sort, maybe London L3 uh, lineage or something like that. But most of our stuff is Conan from Bootleg Biology, and I love their yeast. I think um, their Conan strain is uh, significantly more complex than some of the other ones that I've used, and we've tried a mm. lot of them. I think that uh, where they grew theirs up from uh, is something to pay attention to, which I can't reveal too much about all of that stuff, but <laughs> I will say it's pretty special. Uh, it comes from a very special source. <laughs> and uh, I think that that one emits some like stone fruit, peachy characters, uh, and it also attenuates a bit more than some of the other ones that I've worked with. I, I like it. Uh, it's great for harvesting. I've heard so many stories uh, that a lot of people who use Conan, they say it doesn't like uh, harvest really well. It's so awesome for us. Like we're able to do that pretty easily with that yeast, that particular one. So we use that and then uh, we start at 67 degrees and then we drive the temperature uh, probably to a, a surprisingly high level. And we learned that just through observational sensory stuff uh, where we kept taking it higher and higher with fermentation temperature to see what we could coax out of it. And, uh, you know, I will say that piece is definitely a proprietary thing for us is there's a number you can go too oh. far with. Uh, but I, I would tell you is uh, challenge the level of what you can take Conan to. It's, it's definitely one of those yeasts that likes to be beat up. I think um, in a lot of ways you can treat it like Hefeweizen. It likes to be a little underpitched. Uh, and then I think it likes to be a little warmer fermented than you might conventionally think of. And I think that works well. So you're, you're over 72 then. Yes. <laughs> I mean, a lot over, uh, I mean, depends what you, depends what you mean by a lot. I would say experiment <laughs> beyond that. <laughs> How intensely should someone experiment beyond it's that? It's not, it's not quite yeast. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> okay. Okay. But, uh, but I think that like, that's part of the, the fun of like, figuring, you just let a free rise out there then we and, do uh, like we were at 67 when we cool in and then, uh, we hit our set temp and then let it free rise to it. And, uh, it loves it. I, it does such a good job at that, at that temperature. But I think that's another thing that with yeast in general is we give our yeast plenty of time to do what it needs to do. And we've baked that into our business model is like giving yeast time to clean up and do all the right things and drop out of suspension. And so um, we give it like almost 10 days total uh, to drop out before we're even dry hopping it. So we're terminal when we dry hop. We don't do, we tried active dry hopping and the biotransformation thing for us, for our beer, we didn't feel like it added any tangible piece that we liked about it or maybe even churn the hops up too much. Didn't fit with our soft uh, process that we're trying to do with our beer. So we are more along the lines of like, let's get it terminal and let's dry hop. Uh, we break it into two phases, uh, do the first dry hop, and then we do the second one. Um, second dry hop, uh, we come in the third day, we bump the temperature down to 60 degrees, give it a soft crash. Uh, we see some hop creep like on day one of, of dry hop. Maybe it continues into day two, but it's um, it's done by the time we get to uh, day three uh, when it's at 60 degrees and then um, we'll bung it at that point. And then we start dumping off at 60 degrees is the first dump and then 35 degrees the next day, day four, we dump again. And then um, 
uh, day five, we dump again, and then we're moving into the bright tank. So we're really a five day process, but we only have uh, three days of contact time. And I think that's key for these hops is reducing vegetal and polyphenol content of the dry hopping profile as quickly as possible while also passing through VDK or any hop creep issues. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And it does sound like that kind of higher attenuation that may come out of that higher temperature approach as well as, you know, the the kind yeah. of higher ester, uh, you know, production that would, you know, typically come, you know, from that kind of fits into the uh, the overall soft and fruity approach and in fact may actually, you know, kind of counteract some of the kind of, you know, uh, or help add some character in there, uh, you know, given how quiet you are in some other places. Sure, uh, yeah. Some of these. I think we have like, um, uh, because it is a warmer dry hop, that's where we pick up some more of like the tropical character. But it also probably speeds up the hop creep a little bit more because we're not trying to do cool dry hopping. Although we do some cooler dry hopping when we're uh, doing like West Coast interpretations. And certainly with lager, we're doing that because we're nowhere yeah. near those temperatures at all. And it works yeah. just fine yeah. too. Well, we've been talking for a little bit, a little bit of time now. Maybe we, you know, we'll pull back from the whole, uh, you know, brewing question and, uh, you know, and look at the, uh, you know, the bigger picture. Um, you know, when you started BKS, you wanted to, you know, you wanted to create this small business that could grow organically and that could kind of see where it went for you. You know, you didn't know exactly what to expect from it um, and how things would uh, would go. Now, six years in, you have a little more clear of an idea about, uh, you know, what the, at least the near-term trajectory is. Uh, what do you think the, you know, the, the, you know, next five years, next six years have in stake for BKS and where would you like to, to be, you know, in another six years from now? What's that, what's that vision for where you want, where you go from here? I think I might be too impulsive with that statement, but Mary's probably better to take that one than me. Yeah, I think we <laughs> we kind of have different visions sometimes, but um, really, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think we both ultimately want to produce, you know, quality product. Uh, uh, Brian was saying, you know, we want to grow when we have the right people. Uh, we want to have efficient processes in place. Um, we want to provide, uh, you know the community, a place to come and to gather. Um, I don't know that we have the same vision on how big we're going to be, you know, things of that nature. And I don't know that we really know uh, the industry. I feel like right now is, is kind of in a interesting standpoint of there are a lot of, a lot of breweries opening. There's always a lot, a lot of breweries closing. And I think we need to take some time this year um, to see what happens. Mm -hmm. I don't, I think it would be, um, you know, there's some things we can do now to kind of get things in a place where maybe we can be finan you know, financially ready to take the next step if that came about. Um, but I think we also need to make sure we're being aware of market changes, supply chain changes, um, consumer demands that, you know, are, are going in different ways. Uh, so we need to make sure we're, we're building a business that's sustainable and not just being reactive uh, to, to something we think you know, we don't want to grow just for growth sake. Yeah, I can tell you uh, there definitely will be more sessionable lower ABV beers from us. Uh, I think we believe strongly in that. Our English mild is like a cornerstone piece for that that we made that um, had the GABF medal this year. And uh, we're kind of excited to do more of that. And we see yep. consumer trends shifting 
a little more towards that, maybe uh, like hazy pale ale or West Coast pale ale along with it. But we're also extremely excited about the, the lager program that we do. It's under a side brand called Pivo Project. And that's one of the ones that's um, kind of attracting most of my attention these days. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by lager fermentation and all the complexities that come with it. I could uh, definitely see us uh, taking some significant um, growth steps towards uh, lager production and acquiring equipment to help us continue to make um, more complex lager. Uh, that, that's uh, kind of the next evolution for where I see us going. And so still continuing along and making all the beers that we do with BKS Artisan Ales, but maybe uh, Pivo Project has a, a thing of its own on the side. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that sounds like a great place to bring this to a close. GD Chillers has partnered with 3,000 plus breweries around the country and offers 24 7 service and support. CanCraft is nearby and ready to deliver your complete packaging solution. AccuBrew gives brewers like you unprecedented insight into your fermentation process. ProBrew solutions are specifically designed to help you brew your beer. Flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped over 46 states. SS BrewTech has taken tech they invented working with industry vets and made it available to every craft brewer. And Christian Hansen's SmartBev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria are the product of over 100 years of experience. Of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast and all the others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and... If you are a subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing, you'll have access to the recipe from BKS for clouds. It's out there. It's on the website, but uh, you do have to be a subscriber to access that content. If you want to make your own iteration of uh, of their silver medal winning double IPA, hazy double IPA, um, you can try your own hand at it. Uh, although, uh, who knows where your recipe has changed since then? Uh, maybe we'll have to uh, we'll have to think about an update somewhere here. Uh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, anyway, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, to support us. Uh, uh, Mary, Brian, if people want to learn more about BKS or uh, sample your beers, uh, where do they find you all? Yeah, so if you are coming to Kansas City anytime soon, maybe for Chiefs game or something along those lines, uh, we are in Kansas City, Missouri, Brookside neighborhood, 63rd Street and Holmes. Uh, come on by, we're open seven days a week. And then um, online, you can find us at bksartisanels.com. Uh, we're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at bksartisanels. I appreciate you all both joining me for this podcast. Uh, it's been great talking to you, and I look forward to trying some more beers from you soon. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Jamie. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.